to For the Record, the 70s, this is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this One Woman, One Mic show, and today we will examine the rise of heavy metal in the 70s and try to better understand why this music, which rock critics despised, was so popular with its young fans. First, thank you to the new and loyal listeners who have reached out in the past month. I do appreciate hearing from you. Remember, we have no advertisers for this show. But if you want to help pay some of the bills, here are three things you can do. One, you can tell someone about the podcast. Two, you can drop a nice rating on your podcast app. Or three, you can head over to ftr70.com and drop a couple dollars in the tip jar by clicking on the Patreon link. That helps pay for my subscription fees to things like the newspaper archives, and now Rolling Stone, which has decided to charge for access to its archives. Not that I blame them. I'm surprised they've been offering it for free for so long. Okay, enough housekeeping. You would have been very hard-pressed to find a rock critic in the 70s, who had anything positive at all to say about heavy metal. One of the most notorious quotes comes from Robert Duncan, who was a writer and editor for Cream Magazine. He wrote, Heavy metal, pimply, prole, putrid, unchic, unsophisticated, anti-intellectual, but impossibly pretentious, dismal, abysmal, terrible, horrible, and stupid music, barely music at all, deaf music, dead music, the beat and boogie, the dance of defeat and decay, the huh sound, the duh sound, music made by slack-jawed, alpaca-haired, bulbous-inseamed imbeciles in jackboots and leather and chrome for slack-jawed, alpaca-haired, downy-mustachioed imbeciles in cheap, two large t-shirts, with pictures of comic book Armageddon ironed on the front. Wow. It is a good thing for the heavy metal bands and the bands that were kind of heavy metal adjacent that music fans can be very loyal. That's especially true of heavy metal fans and could not care less if a critic likes their music or not. Sometimes that's a feature rather than a bug. This especially uh, was true of the young white guys who were the majority of heavy metal fans. There was the occasional metal chick scattered in there too. Remember, these are the fans that bought the records. They ditched school to take a road trip to the nearest city to see their favorite band at whatever civic auditorium was hosting the show. They bought the t-shirts. They gave the bands their career. Critics be damned. I should point out that when heavy metal was born that the term heavy metal did not exist, at least not in music. What we now know as heavy metal was usually referred to as hard rock. It is important to keep in mind that the definition of rock music as a whole can and does change. Just about every act at Woodstock considered themselves rock, but now we might view some of them differently. As with other subgenres of rock, There are also some disagreements about what exactly qualifies as heavy metal, and there are a lot of disagreements on who gets the title of first 
heavy metal band? Was it Led Zeppelin? Was it Black Sabbath? I will take a look at both. What we can all agree on is that this is loud, aggressive music, and the very things that the critics hated, the loud vocals, the thundering drum beat, the crunchy power chord, the distorted electric guitar, that's exactly what its fans liked. You mix in some taboo, satanic, or mystic symbolism, and you've got the teenage white kid's dream. It was nothing new under the sun that rock music appealed to the rebellious nature of youth, but this particular music seemed more scary than most, and louder. And to get that loud, you had to have the technology. You needed an amplifier, which is just one of the reasons that metal evolved in the 70s. The technology was there. That first came in 1962, courtesy of Jim Marshall. If you have ever seen an amp and paid any attention at all to the amp, chances are you noticed the name Marshall in white script that's attached to the front of it. Marshall was known as the father of loud, and he made amps out of his shop in West London. One day, one of his regular customers, Pete Townsend, yes, that Pete Townsend of The Who, asked Marshall to build an amp that was bigger and louder than the American Fender amps that he had been using. Townsend said, I don't want to hear the crowd. And Marshall said, okay. But look, it's not Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin or Alice Cooper or Ted Nugent who created the concept of this scary devil music. Like rock music itself, that came from the blues. The music your mom does not want you to hear, and so come hell or high water, you will find that music, and when you do, you know why you weren't supposed to. Every heavy metal band owes a debt of gratitude to Howlin' Wolf for moaning in the moonlight. Listen to this, and listen to the conception of heavy metal. I gave you the name of the album title, Moaning in the Moonlight, in my lead-in, in my exuberance to play part of this song and to talk about this song. That's from 1959. Look, Howlin' Wolf gives us a glimpse into the future with that wailing harmonica matching up with those guttural vocals. And if you could just imagine that electric guitar hooked up to an amp, we've got heavy metal. 
As we move through the post-Beatles arrival 1960s, we see elements of heavy metal in some rock songs. No heavy metal bands, but hard rock bands that give us these heavy metal pieces. So while not the only band that is the forerunner of heavy metal, one of the most influential bands was Cream, Jack Bruce, Eric Clapton, and Ginger Baker. Their album, Fresh Cream, released in 1966, was very bluesy. No shock, given that uh, Clapton was part of that band. Their second album, Disraeli Gears, had only one hit single, but what a hit that was, Sunshine of Your Love. Listen for this high tenor of Jack Bruce's vocals, the riffs from Clapton's guitar, and then Baker's double bass drum, and you will hear another glimpse of what is to come for heavy metal. into the top 40 in early 1968. Then it was back on the charts again that summer and made it to number five in August of 1968. One of the defining elements of that song is the main riff, which was repeated over and over again. And the song is built around that riff. We will hear heavy metal bands do that too. And in Jack Bruce's lead vocal style, I think that we, when we listen to Robert Plant, we're hearing him, whether he's intentionally doing it or not, he's emulating Jack Bruce on this song. So this is from David Brackett's Pop, Rock, and Soul Reader. This is what he wrote about heavy metal, or at least this is what somebody wrote. He's the editor of the book. Heavy metal spoke to class and age divisions in the audience. Lower and lower middle class versus bourgeois and college students versus high school students. In speaking to class and age division, historians today and critics then largely agree that hard rock and or heavy metal was the domain of the white working class young male. These fans took a lot of exception to the critics who claimed that there was no message in the lyrics or that there needs to be a specific message at all. Even the bands themselves were not exactly sure that their music had a specific message. Like a lot of music, the genre was very much about fantasy and escapism, and that often came from the sound more than the words. Now we kind of get into this murky territory when we start talking about the messaging 
of heavy metal. Because certainly one of the criticisms of heavy metal, especially lobbied at, or lobbed, I should say, at Black Sabbath, is the so-called satanic messaging. The band that at one time was called Earth, that changed its name to Black Sabbath after Ozzy Osbourne wrote the lyrics to the song Black Sabbath, that had, has lyrics like this. What is this that stands before me, figure in black which points at me? Turn around quick and start to run. Find out I'm the chosen one. Oh, no. Big black shape with eyes of fire, telling people their desire. Satan's sitting there. He's smiling. Watches those flames get higher and higher. Oh, no, no. Please, God, help me. And yes, Geezer Butler, the bass player for the band, did briefly dabble in the occult, but he said he had a vision of a demon and went back to being Catholic. In 1978, Ozzy Osbourne said that Black Sabbath was not a satanic band and that they were really just trying to, quote, create a brand to sell the band. So in 78, uh, you know, eight years after Black Sabbath started to draw a consistent following and had their first hit, he's saying that it was for show. None other than Psychology Today published an article on the band back in 2012. William Irwin, who has written on the philosophy of pop culture, pointed out that, for example, in the Black Sabbath song, After Forever, they are what he calls overtly Christian lyrics, including, God is the only way to love, open your eyes, just realize he's the one, the only one who can save you now from all this sin and hate. But the music is still scary. And as Irwin and others point out, it's scary because it sounds scary and it sounds evil and therein lies the appeal. Let's listen to a clip of one of Black Sabbath's most well-known songs, Paranoid. is the only top 20 hit that Black Sabbath ever had. It doesn't sound evil to me in the way that, say, NIB does, which literally has the line, my name is Lucifer, please take my hand. But the urgency of Paranoid could be unsettling to some, and one could certainly see how if mom or dad heard this coming from the basement stereo in the late summer of 1970, they probably would not have cared for that too much. I have also heard that uh, Black Sabbath was also a favorite of some of the troops in Vietnam, and you can see the appeal there too. The other band that is often credited with being the first heavy metal band, Led Zeppelin, did not use satanic references, 
but did use a lot of mystic images in its music and on its cover art. They did not create music that was as aggressive as Black Sabbath. And as uh, Barney Hoskins said in his book on the band, uh, Led Zeppelin also never really had that goth element. Jimmy Page said that they didn't like being associated with heavy metal. He said, quote, it's a bastard term to us. I can't relate that to us because the thing that comes to mind when people say heavy metal is riff bashing. And I don't think we ever just did riff bashing at any point, meaning that they had more nuance than that. Without knowing he was doing it, Greg Allman gave a really good description of the opposite of this in his autobiography, My Cross to Bear. He wrote, if you play a note so fast just to fit it in there, it's going to be just one of a multitude of notes. It's not going to create a lot of emotion or feeling. The longer that note or musical passage has to ring or linger, the more impact it is. It has. Less is more, man. So that's just another thought uh, from, from two guys who knew how to play the guitar. I came across an interesting analysis of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. In all places, a popular music textbook called American Popular Music by Larry Starr and Christopher Waterman, which is one of the most well-written textbooks of any kind I've ever come across. I'm going to kind of walk you through that analysis because I will admit that it really made me stop and reconsider Stairway to Heaven. Not that I, I mean, I've always loved Stairway to Heaven. Who doesn't? But I've never really thought of it in the way it's presented here. First, the description of the song, a bombastic fusion of guitar-driven rock and roll, psychedelia, art rock, and folk music. Folk music? Yes, folk music. Most people think of loud guitar and possibly Robert Plant's tight jeans when they think of Led Zeppelin. And those things are true, but they also fused their interest in English and Celtic mythology into their music. And Starr and Waterman argue that, quote, the twin musical threads of sonic aggression and acoustic intimacy run through the entire history of heavy metal. When I read that for the first time, it was like the brightest of light bulb moments. It's not just the ballads that always seem to be part of the metal albums, you know, like uh, Still Loving You by the Scorpions or something like that. But it's the very act of slowing the pace that draws in the audience. I teach about this in my rhetoric class. The change of pace or volume of your speaking voice makes for a more engaging speech. And I think the same is true for music. And for metal, it actually makes the loud louder. Starr and Waterman said that the combination of rock physicality and folk mysticism in Stairway to Heaven creates something of a sacred experience. So let's check out some of this folk mysticism from Stairway to Heaven. And it's whisper that soon if we all call the tune then the piper will lead us to reason and a new day will dawn for those who stand long and the
some of that, uh, that folk mysticism, the reference to the May Queen, uh, the goddess of spring festivals, and reference to the Piper. Um, Now let's check in with the rock physicality portion of Stairway to Heaven. You know, Stairway to Heaven uh, was never released as a single. You had to buy the album. And there were these persistent rumors that if you played the song backwards, there were satanic messages. But no, uh, that's conspiracy theory stuff. Listen, if you ever 
saw, if you had the opportunity to see Led Zeppelin live and hear them perform that, I would love to hear from you because that must have been an incredible experience to hear that song played live. So when I was trying to get to the heart of what heavy metal fans liked about the music, uh, beyond the fact that it's loud, uh, probably the best description I read was actually from a fan who was really pissed off about an article that Eric Siegel wrote for the Baltimore Sun in 1980. The headline of Siegel's article was, Heavy Metal is the Porno of Pop. In that article, Siegel wrote, Criticizing heavy metal is a little like criticizing President Carter's economic policies. Both are so utterly and obviously deficient as to make pointing out their shortcomings seem somewhat superfluous. Still, given the evidence of its resurgence, it is worth restating that heavy metal stands as the hardcore pornography of popular music. It has no redeeming social value. Hmm. So what didn't Siegel like about it? To him, it all sounded the same. None of the above-mentioned crop of heavy metal bands, he said, and he was referencing uh, Van Halen, Judas Priest, and Ted Nugent, offers more than a very occasional scintilla of artfulness or originality in musicianship, songwriting, vocals, or most of all, vision. He also singles out Van Halen's Everybody Wants Some as an example of the misogynistic material that he seemed to believe was exclusive to heavy metal. We know that that's a problem throughout rock, so that was not just heavy metal's problem. More on Van Halen in a minute. But As you can imagine, especially in 1980, as heavy metal has survived disco and is about to enter its heyday, this article sent fans to their paper and pen to write responses. So here's one. Heavy metal is a fantasy worked out on stage just as much as John Wayne movies, comic books, and pinball machines. Heavy metal is a way of escaping the doldrums of everyday life, nothing more and nothing less. It is a fast train to nowhere, which may be one reason it is so good to feel. Another reason is so appealing is because it is solid working class music. It is fast, unsophisticated, and to the point. But the most important aspect of heavy metal is that from Chuck Berry on, rock has provided anthems to teenhood and teenage frustration, and there is perhaps no music which more accurately conveys the screaming nerves of pubescent frustration than heavy metal. And that was from Keith Cunningham from Edgewood, Maryland. Keith, if you happen to be be listening to this, I'd love to interview you too. So email me. A fast train to nowhere. An escape. And there certainly was a lot to escape from in the 70s. War and Watergate and crashing economy. In fact, in a future episode... I am going to make the case that bubblegum pop served the exact same purpose as heavy metal. That's right. Donnie and Marie served the same purpose as Ted Nugent and Van Halen. Uh, Gary Mullinax wrote for the Morning News in Wilmington, Delaware in 1978 that heavy metal, quote, swirls through the mind like a cleansing dervish and wrenches the gut like a good shock treatment. That's a pretty apt description as well. So I happen to have in my hands a copy of Rolling Stone magazine dated March 9th, 1979, and there is Ted Nugent on the cover. So Nugent said, I think most of them have a basic knowledge and grip and focus of their talents, and I believe the reason they can go to the gigs is they have jobs. 
There's guys out there in pickup trucks who talk four-wheel drive with me, guys out there with amplifiers and guitars who talk music with me, and there are guys out there with big grins on their faces who talk pussy with me. My only real unanswered question is why so many of the kids, say a couple thousand out of 20,000, are out there, man, just wounded. You know, it's an interesting assessment from Ted Nugent on his fans because it doesn't seem like he thought it was a great mystery about who was attracted to his music. A bunch of guys who understood what they were good at in life, pursued that, made enough money to come to his shows. And then he also attracted some people who had questions about life. It didn't seem to be uh, something that he thought was any deeper than that. Still, you know, Ted Nugent did take exception to the criticism that his music was simply noise. In a 1977 uh, newspaper article, he acknowledged that the young guys who went to his concerts often ended up in fights, and some of them ended up arrested. And he said that he literally demanded a reaction from them in his shows, and if they weren't foaming at the mouth after 40 minutes, then he had not done his job. However, Nugent also defended his music and said that he would be a pretty bad musician after all these years if he'd only learned three chords and how to make noise with them. He used Stranglehold as an example, and he said it has a melody, and it was born out of several musical influences, and argued that just because it's loud doesn't mean it's not music. From 1975, that's Ted Nugent's debut album, or from his debut album, Stranglehold. Definitely has one of the best guitar solos in rock history. Nugent doesn't sing that song, by the way. Uh, Derek St. Holmes does. Eventually, Nugent took over singing the hits because he was kind of jealous of the attention that was not going to him. 
He said many years later that this is a song of defiance with the music industry. So again, you know, we've got this criticism towards heavy metal. A lot of people thought that this song was about a woman and got very upset about the misogyny. But he said it's not about that. He said it's more about the music industry. In fact, I'm going to let him say it. He says it a lot better than I do. In 1975, Nugent went solo. His first album, Ted Nugent, featuring Stranglehold, was eight minutes of masterful guitar playing by a man looking to make a statement. The song is not only sensual and sexual, but it's lyrically, it is a song of defiance with the music industry. Oh, this is a great story. The music industry passed, every record label passed on Ted Nugent. Oh, he's got that feedback guitar. It's all guitar jamming type stuff, and he sings songs about strangleholds. No, we'll pass. Everybody passed. The song, Here I Come Again Now, Baby, Like a Dog in Heat. You tell us me by the clamor now, baby, I'd like to tear up the street. I've been smoking for so long, you know I'm here to stay. I got you in a stranglehold. Get out of my way. That's to the industry. This is the music that people love. I'm playing 300 concerts a year and the people are foaming at the mouth. I'm foaming at the mouth. The energy at my concerts was unprecedented and remains unprecedented. So some dirt bag at a desk in New York City is gonna say that my music isn't relative? You can come on the road with me a couple hundred nights and see the relative. Watch the girls dance. That's relative, you dirt bag. So it was a song of defiance. So uh, there you have it. Uh, his fans could interpret the song however they wanted to, but that's what it meant. Uh, to Ted Nugent. Siegel also mentioned uh, Van Halen in his scathing article on heavy metal. Eddie Van Halen has said more than one time that the reason he picked up a guitar in the first place is because of Eric Clapton. Van Halen was also inspired by classical music artists such as Vivaldi and Bach, but with Clapton, he recorded his solos and slowed them down so he could copy them note for note. Crossroads is a very good example of that, which I Pretty sure you can find out there on YouTube somewhere. But Clapton has said that he thinks Eddie Van Halen is technically good, but lacks feeling, which one historian has interpreted as Clapton thinking that he himself is more authentic to the blues. That's odd uh, to me, since Clapton, a white man, has made a career out of playing blues music. And I love Clapton's music, but I think of him as blues-inspired, not necessarily a authentic blues guitarist any more than Eddie Van Halen is. Uh, after all, you know, all rock music is derivative. In a wonderful interview that rock journalist Steve Rosen um, posted, and it was from, he believes, 1978. He said it also could have been early 79. Eddie Van Halen was talking about the success that the band was having after their first world, world tour. And as he sat there with Rosen just kind of playing around with an unplugged 66 Stratocaster, which is amazing all on its own, he said that he had not expected the success of the first album. Um, that first album was called uh, Creatively Van Halen. No surprise, uh, the critics did not like this band either, but their fans did. Eddie said something kind of interesting to Rosen after he said he felt good about the next album, which will be called Van Halen 2. It had not been released yet. He said that he just kind of wrote what he felt, and he could not help it if he came up with a, quote, poppy-sounding riff, meaning, of course, commercial success. Dare I say a little crossover, bringing in enough non-metal fans to make 
Some people question whether it was metal at all if so many people liked it, such as the price of success. It's kind of that age-old question of authenticity again. Uh, Van Halen said that they did not force themselves as a band to write something commercial, almost like he was apologizing for the band's popularity. There are a lot of people who want to believe that Running with the Devil from the first Van Halen album is about worshiping Satan. Uh, let's do a little lyric check here. I live my life like there's no tomorrow, and all I've got I've had to steal. Least I don't need to beg or borrow. Yes, I'm living at a pace that kills. Ooh, yeah. Mm. You're going to have to work harder than that to convince me that there's anything other in there other than a rock band's song about life on the road. What we do have is a classic Van Halen. David Lee Roth's wailing lyrics and a lot of great guitar riffs. Van Halen becomes enormously popular in the 80s. Just to show you how loyal his fans, or not just his, the band's fans were, uh, when Van Halen starts relying a lot more on the synthesizer uh, and also replaced their lead singer uh, with uh, Sammy Sammy Hagar, the fans stick with them. And eventually Van Halen is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I believe that was in 2007. The band was also able to ride out the near death of heavy metal in the late 70s, which is largely attributed to disco. Um, this was a you know a dance music wave that nearly crushed everything in its path until disco died out. In fact, in some ways, heavy metal in the 80s followed the same path as disco. It became so popular that all but most of the loyalist fans kind of got burned out on it. And if it's not rebellious anymore then it's not as fun. Not that heavy metal ever went away completely. Heavy metal did not, but it certainly waned in popularity near the end of the 80s. Rebellion was not at all 
exclusive to heavy metal. And it is way too simplistic to say that that is all that there was about the music. Still, the early 70s, when heavy metal is born, is this era of youth revolt, a backlash against the establishment, if you will. And even if the fans of heavy metal did not view themselves as political, and in fact, enjoyed music that many people found distasteful, their love of it was in many ways a political act. Their loyalty to it in the years that decades that follow could speak to nostalgia, or it could be that even as adults, we still look for our methods of escape. Dina Weinstein, who wrote a very, very scholarly analysis of heavy metal, said heavy metal brings out visceral rather than intellectual reactions in both its fans and detractors. I say, I think that's exactly the point. That is all for this episode of For the Record to 70s. All my sources for this episode are on ftr70.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at 70spodcast. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.